This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for being with us here on a Monday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with your telephone number 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. We've got a lot more to get to on the program this afternoon here, but let's have a conversation about the future. It feels like as much as we want progress to occur, as much as maybe deep down we think that uh, you know, future technologies can make our lives better, there seems to be a, a pessimism about the future. We kind of assume that things are going to get worse or that there's not a lot to be optimistic about. Uh, the idea of dreaming of a better future, maybe that, that's fallen out of favor. Uh, and to be sure, I mean, you know, it's been a tumultuous uh, couple of decades so far here in the 21st century. Uh, but is there reason for optimism? Is there reason to imagine what the future might hold? And how do we get there? Well, this is all explored uh, in an important new book. It's called The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Uh, joining us to talk more about the book is its author, James Pathakuk, is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has mentioned the book, The Conservative Futurist. James, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you talk about in the book, you know, sort of the, the nostalgia of the, the, the Tomorrowland uh, kind of imagination that we, we really did at some point, I think, uh, believe in a brighter future. I don't know. I mean, is, is that a mischaracterization of the past? Maybe we always sort of wanted progress, but at the same time, at the same time kind of feared it? No, I, I think there has been. A, there was a shift, I think, starting in the 1970s from a far more optimistic attitude about what technology could bring to a more pessimistic attitude that tend to focus on uh, the downsides, you know, particularly as they would affect the environment. And I think that sort of more downbeat attitude has gotten us stuck in the idea that we sort of really can't fix the big problems, that the future is just going to be one of, you know, a shattered climate, uh, you know, uh, Gross inequality. If there are new, if there are new gadgets created, it won't help most people. And I think it was just really seen that attitude with the, the sort of the panic about these advances in AI, and which maybe for about you know thirty seconds we thought, oh, this is kind of cool, and maybe it can yeah. make us more productive and help us. But then, boom, it became going to take all the jobs, and then it's going to try to kill us. Well, and that's an interesting example because I think there is at some level maybe a, a cynicism because of maybe false starts or things we've been promised or, um, you know, I, there's a quote you, you include in the book, right, that we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters that, you know, the, there's a difference between, you know, those promises not being fulfilled, but then also, as you say, just assuming the worst when we do see, uh, you know, something that's that's revolutionary. Yeah, I think... I think we're at a really interesting moment where I think you see the beginnings of an emerging revolution in technology, AI being one, but also there's been like a lot of advances. Uh, CRISPR, these MNRA vaccines, uh, the cost of getting, you know, 
a pound of anything into space has gone down by over 90%. Um, and what we're seeing with nuclear energy, we have this nuclear fusion breakthrough. I think you put all that together, and I think that there is sort of a special moment. But really, the point of my book is we shouldn't just depend or, or, or assume all that stuff is going to turn into good stuff that's going to help us. There's things we must do. And certainly in the United States, we've made it very hard to build things in the real world uh, through regulation. And we haven't spent nearly as much as we should have on science research. So I'm not going to assume the next great thing is going to turn into a great thing for everybody. I think there's more things we have to do to sort of accelerate that progress. We have big problems we need to solve. I am quite convinced that more tech progress and faster economic growth is a key to solving those problems. Right. And so is, is that where then the concept of uh, a conservative futurist comes into play? Yeah. Well, I mean, the vision here is that we have it in our power through technological progress, driving economic growth to create a better future. But for me, that vision is also rooted in the ideas of limited government, not small government, but mm. government doing what it can do well, uh, markets, free markets, and the idea of social mobility, that we should be able, if the economy is running running well, we should be able to move up the ladder. Those kind of, that social dynamism is part of it. And so that's where I sort of get both those ideas stuck together, even though most people might think, well, those ideas really don't go together. Right, because the other side of that, you know, would, would argue that technology has hurt us, right? This sort of more pessimistic view that, like with AI and, and, you know, the same kind of arguments that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years, that technology is eliminating jobs, not creating new opportunities. So how do, how do we counter that perception? Well, I, I think that that is just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, we have very low unemployment right now, certainly in the United States. Uh, the history of technological change is that it, yes, it destroys some jobs, but I think the way to look at it is it can automate some things we do. It can help us do some other things we do more productively, and it creates new things. And it's always easier to look at what it, what it destroys than what it creates. But yet at the end of the day, and I think this needs to be our baseline, it will create more jobs and things for us to do than it will, be than it will destroy those things. And I don't want to be in the position of trying to quash this technology that not only may make us more productive, but I think really interesting will make all our scientists and technologists more productive. I don't want to give up those gains over fears of a sort of jobs implosion, which I think is highly unlikely. Well, and that's certainly not the track record of technology, right? I mean, you look at, you know, the number of people in the workforce, you look at earnings, like all of these kind of doomsday warnings about technology taking away our jobs, destroying those those opportunities. That That's just that hasn't been the case. No, listen, uh, you know, you know, over the last 30 years, at least in the United States, wages for like the average typical worker, you know, not, you know, not, no, not, not the top. But for just like the typical worker, those wages have gone up by a third. Mm -hmm. All the while, some people are complaining about technology. And one thing I looked at, I thought it was an interesting example, were like Hollywood, you know, Hollywood special effects people. You know, so that's a, that's a, that's something where you've had technology radically change the job from the kind of practical effects to, to like CGI. And when that when, when computer generated 
graphics and special effects start becoming started becoming more widespread, people said, oh, you know, that's it. You're going to have one guy doing all the special effects. They're all going to lose their jobs. There's more people doing those jobs today than there were 30 years ago. The jobs may have changed. People may have had to learn new skills. But the story is sort of the same, that ultimately, at the end, there's just, it creates more demand. There's more movies that use special effects. I mean, it's just one example, but I think it's pretty illustrative of the kind of phenomenon we've seen across sectors as technology has moved in. It's interesting. I mean, you describe yourself as a conservative futurist, but you also talk in the book about how maybe left-wing, left-wing and right-wing concepts don't necessarily apply here. That uh, Use the term upwing, I guess, as opposed to, to downwing, yeah. sort of that optimism versus pessimism. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what I sort of see. I see that you have big chunks of both the Democratic and Republican parties, which seem to be very skeptical about progress. They're very skeptical about about trade. They're skeptical about, you know, the technology sector. Then I think you also have big chunks in both parties uh, who think, you know what, we have problems and we need to solve them. Uh, you worried about climate change? I think there are, there's growing recognition that nuclear energy is going to have to be part of it. Like, if you don't think it is, I think that 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 marks you as kind of a downwing person. Uh, people who see that, yeah, we that you know the vaccines, those are pretty darn important, and yet there are people on the left and on the right who are, who don't think vaccines are important, right. who are against vaccines. I mean, I think that those two issues, like knowing where someone stands on nuclear energy, if I can know no nothing else but where they are on MNRA vaccines <laughs> and where they are on nuclear energy, I can probably tell you if they're an upwing person or a downwing person. But yeah, and you talk about some fundamental issues because this isn't just about, you know, the next social media craze or, you know, a, a slightly nicer phone than what we have now. I mean, we're talking about the kinds of change that, you know, can solve these environmental challenges we face, uh, you know, medicine and, and healthcare and extending our, our lifespans, conquering diseases, you know, how we travel, how we commute, you know, how, how much we earn, the kinds of jobs we work. Like, this is all pretty fundamental to our lives. This is the kind of change we're talking about. I, this, things we're talking about now are things we could have had decades ago, but we've made some bad decisions. Okay, I don't want to lose that future, because I would like to have a much, listen, I don't want to live to be 300, but I would like to be able to live, uh, to be able to play tennis when I'm 100. That sounds pretty good. Uh, I, you know, I would, you know, I, I, I have bad eyes. I, I hope I don't have to go blind. That's pretty important. Uh, I, I would like to have faster growth so that the poorest people in the world could live as well as the richest people in the world. And I would like to make sure that if there's a big chunk of ice headed toward the earth, that we could deflect it and save all of humanity. Those are the kinds of things technology can enable. And unfortunately, most of the talk about technology over the past decade has been about social media platforms rather than these kinds of, I think, really important fundamental changes. Well, and back to AI, because AI is an example of, you know, where there's there's a real big breakthrough happening almost in real time. Uh, people are, are suspicious or fearful of it. And from that, there's kind of this demand that it be policed or that we, we you know, we stifle it even a little bit or have government regulate it. And those say, you know, we, do, we don't want it to be a free for all. We got to be careful with this. So on the point about not stymieing innovation and allowing it to flourish, where, where do we find balance there? Well, I, I, I 
think you know, we, I, we do have a really good example where we had this, where half century ago we, we had this, I think, not based at all in science or, or, or what we actually saw in the technology, this, this fear, this fear of nuclear energy. And now we're sitting here a half century later wondering, you know, what we're going to do about climate change. Should, do we have to live less well? Uh, can we even afford to have AI if it uses too much, too much energy? Because we made it, we made a really bad decision in many in many Western societies that we were going to be super risk averse. Mm-hmm. I do not want to make that exact mistake now, and we have been too marinated in sort of you know this kind of you know dystopian sci-fi, where immediately we go to really science fictional kinds of threats from AI. That I think I think that are just that are science fictional right now. Uh, we are the early days, and if it turns out to be a problem, I would rather worry about fixing them on the fly than to stifle a technology beneath layers of bureaucracy. Well, the book is called The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the conversation. Rob, thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, James Pathagoukis. He is the author of The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. He's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. Embrace progress. Don't get in the way of progress. That's his message. Let's start this afternoon with an issue we've been talking a lot about in recent months, and that's the criminal justice system, but more specifically, the need for bail reform. And we've heard some awful stories where you know individuals have been victimized, even murdered, by individuals that maybe shouldn't have been walking around the streets in the first place. And it's not just a question of the kind of sentences we're handing out. But situations where individuals are facing charges, facing trial, not yet convicted of those specific charges, uh, but people with a history of, of similar kinds of violent crime. Why are those individuals walking around free until their trial date? Is there more that we can do uh, to maybe shift the onus or make sure that those who pose a potential threat are, are dealt with differently? Well, like I say, this issue has been certainly at the forefront as of late, and we've seen pressure from provinces, from premiers, from police organizations pleading with the government to do something about this issue. And we finally did see something done, Bill C-48. And surprisingly, we don't see this very often, but Bill C-48 recently uh, got swift passage through the House of Commons with unanimous consent. So it's now before the Senate. There are certainly critics of this bill, those who feel maybe it goes too far. But does it? Is this the kind of bail reform we need? Is this going to make a difference? Well, joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Scott Newark. He's a former Crown prosecutor, also a former security policy advisor to both the Ontario and federal governments. Scott, always great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Good to be back. Uh, I mean, on the surface, it seems encouraging. We got some bail reform legislation. We got the parties to get behind it. We got it through the House of Commons rather quickly. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on, on how that's all unfolded up until this point. Well, I mean, I agree with you that it's good to see that there is uh, this kind of support at the political level. And it, the bill is now before uh, the Senate Justice Committee. 
So they're going to be hearing from uh, witnesses. And you're quite correct that there will be opposition to this. Uh, but in, in all candor, I want to just point out, um, these are issues, you know, you and I have talked about for years. Yeah. And it's not just simply about bail reform. It's about how our justice system deals with repeat and high-risk offenders. And so the bill in question, C-48, is, you're quite correct, it tweaks uh, some of the provisions in the uh, criminal code that deal with bail, and it essentially expands what's known as a reverse onus. In other words, unlike the regular situation where the onus is on the Crown to show that uh, the, the uh, statutory grounds for denying somebody bail, it creates it as a reverse onus, and it specifies some circumstances uh, in the uh, the bill, pretty limited, but where the um, individual's been uh, convicted of a violent offense in, uh, with a, involving a weapon within the preceding five years, then there's going to be a reverse onus on it. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be denied bail, okay? It just means that, in theory... Uh, the onus is on the accused to show that, uh, you know, they should be getting bail. Right. But our system has many, many more problems than just with uh, dealing with uh, bail. And um, the thing that is the most encouraging for me, and I was involved in this, you know, years ago, is what you described in the introduction. It's the fact that there has been, with all of these cases, and not all of them were just about people on bail, but um, people who were repeat and high-risk offenders that were out on the streets. And it's brought together the provincial governments who have, they don't have jurisdiction for, you know, changing the criminal code. That's a federal responsibility. Mm -hmm. But they have the uh, jurisdiction for administering the criminal justice system. And to see them all come together and say, you know, look, we need some changes here, and to see the different frontline organizations like the police associations, which are the unions. And in your intro, you uh, you missed the fact that I, uh, after being a Crown Prosecutor, and frankly exposing cases like this, yep. I ended up uh, going to uh, help the Canadian Police Association, which is the national organization representing all the frontline police officers. And to see everybody coming together like this, and, and frankly, pointing out that it needs more than just simply bail reform is very encouraging, because we saw exactly the same thing, the, if, if you will, the strategy that produced some pretty good results in the uh, uh, late 90s. Uh, it was uh, really led by the uh, Mike Harris, Ontario government, and the then uh, Solicitor General Bob Runciman, and we got a lot of stuff done. And that, for me, is the most encouraging about this, is that it appears as though the voices that matter are coming together. And, and look, don't get me wrong, C-48, bail reform is just one step in the process. There's much, much more that needs to be done, and we need to listen to the frontline people. That's an important point. I mean, some bail reform is necessary, but maybe we should be careful about expecting that alone to, to accomplish too much. It won't. I right. guarantee you it won't. It's, I mean, we, our system is so bizarre. And by the way, for your listeners, if you're having a problem hearing this because you're hearing some strange noises, this is the defense lawyers and judges who are probably screaming right now at my remarks, because our system has a we-know-best-about-everything approach. Mm -hmm. And um, there are so many examples 
Uh, I sent you an article of, uh, some, uh, that I had written recently about this. There's so many examples where you just shake your head and go, why would that be the case? And who it benefits, of course, are the repeat offenders and, and as well, too, and in all fairness, that's the way our justice system works. The, uh, you know, it's a, what's known as an adversarial system. And uh, what that means is the defense counsel's job is to help their clients avoid responsibility for their criminal behavior. Yeah. That's how our system works. And guess what as well, too? Because of the, what I call the juristocracy, the Supreme Court, you know, issuing arbitrary deadlines, specifying it, um, you know, guess who gets paid more money if the, the longer the case takes to get through? I remember when I was a prosecutor, and the I, I was a prosecutor before and after the charter, so that was a very interesting perspective. But um, they, the Supreme Court came out with a case called Stinchcomb that said that the Crown had a charter obligation to provide uh, disclosure to the accused. Right. Now, I had been fortunate enough to work in an office in Wetaskiwin. Our chief Crown prosecutor was a brilliant guy named Dave Plows. That was already our policy in our office. Okay, But as we saw it, this all unfold, it became apparent to us that the reason most defense counsel were asking for disclosure was in the hope that they wouldn't get it. Because <laughs> right. then they could argue that some charter right had been uh, been breached. And the longer it dragged out, the more they got paid. Well, there's the other side of it, too, and maybe you can speak to it as, as a former prosecutor. You know, the pressure on Crown prosecutors to, to get a guilty plea uh, or, you know, to, to resolve the case that way. And we do see these plea agreements, so it saves yep. the system, you know, the cost and the time and the risk of a trial. But, but often it means, you know, lighter sentences. What about the plea deal side of things? Well, the, um, the, the other thing is that our justice system wasn't invented last month by the Federal Department of Justice, okay? It's a part of our historical culture. And for me, the genius of our justice system has always been its ability to deal with this offender, this offense, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's where the discretion of the Crown and, frankly, even the police and, yes, the judges as well, too, comes into play. But increasingly over the years, we've become, uh, in my opinion, uh, our officials have become increasingly risk-averse, and so they don't want to do something that, you know, might be controversial. And so we look the other way with so many things that end up happening uh, in our system, in, in large measure, I think, because of uh, Supreme Court rulings on things, but also because, as I say, the system has become risk-averse. But let me, let me just give you, a, you know, a, some optimism. In Alberta, the new uh, government, one of the best things I think they did when Daniel Smith was elected was they reestablished the, uh, a separate ministry of public safety, and they put in charge a guy named Mike Ellis, who I got to know. I think you may remember Jason Kenney back in, I think it was 2018, asked me to come out and do a review on uh, rural crime, and I got to know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a former Calgary police officer who dealt with intelligence Based cases and uh, high-risk repeat offenders. Mike is now the minister, and as you may and your listeners may uh, know, that just a couple of weeks ago, Alberta announced it was creating a special prosecutorial unit to deal with uh, repeat and high-risk offenders. I had that role back when I was a prosecutor, and it's a very good step in the right direction because it's pragmatic. And as I said at the uh, at the outset, it's listening to the frontline people, and that's what we need to do. 
Yeah, further to that, I think you're right. I mean, that kind of an approach involves shifting priorities, shifting resources, and and governments can do that. Provinces can do that. As we look at uh, what the federal government can do, so we've got some some steps in the right direction on on bail reform. What does the next priority need to be, do you think? Well, uh, there are many. So, you know, it uh, depends on your point of view, but... Let's put it this way. One of the stupidest things that I think we do, and it uh, came out of some rulings by provincial court judges in Ontario back in the late 90s, they said that, uh, oh, you know, um, uh, people who are denied bail and in remand, they don't get access to the rehabilitation programs. And so they, in my opinion, misinterpreted Section 719 of the Criminal Code, which gives the discretion, not the obligation, for a judge to take into account... Uh, any time that was spent in custody because somebody was denied bail when they uh, they reached the point of sentencing. And that was the political motivation that caused judges to, all across the country to start giving double credit and then even triple credit, in some cases quadruple credit for time spent in custody. Guess who figured it out? The bad guys. And the numbers of people who were in custody, who were denied bail, just shot up because they realized it's in their own best interest to do that. That's something that should be done. We should make it clear that if somebody is denied bail, and this is, frankly, in the legislation itself right now, it just isn't used, okay, because of the fact of them having been um, denied bail because of their past record, there is not an obligation in any way to give them uh, credit or extra credit, okay? The other thing, you know, it's an offense in Canada, under the criminal code, if you are released on uh, bail or probation or on a preventive reconnaissance or conditional sentence, if you breach the conditions you're released on, guess what? That's a crime, and you can be prosecuted for it. We keep a record of it. And so if something comes up in the future, we have that record of it. You know what isn't a crime? Breaching the conditions of your parole. Like, what sense yeah. does that make? No. So wh- why and is so these things are just simply not taken into account the way that they should be. Yeah. And when you're dealing with repeat offenders, it's extremely important and relevant. So, you know, as I say, I'm optimistic because I'm seeing the different parties start to look into this. And, uh, you know, uh, both Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan, they're certainly taking a lead into these things. Uh, but there are absolutely, without any question, uh, things that could be done, policy changes that could be made that will help deal with this beyond simply tweaking bail reform. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, Scott, always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Good talking with you. Likewise. All the best. Uh, There you go. Scott Newark, uh, former Crown Prosecutor, uh, former Security Policy Advisor to uh, the governments uh, of Ontario and Canada. And as mentioned, you know, provided some some, uh, advice to, um, I guess, Alberta's opposition at the time back in 2018 on on ways that, uh, you know, provinces could address this. So, yeah, I think Bill C-48 is a good start, but more needs to be done. Question is, I guess, does government now see this as kind of job done? Or do they recognize maybe that it's kind of just the beginning? So anyway, it was encouraging to see where at least there was some all-party support for this, got through the House of Commons really quickly. It's now before the Senate Justice Committee, so we'll see how that all comes out at the end. Anyway.
talk about the really uh, disturbing news from the weekend. Some of the questions it raises. Uh, there's a need for bear awareness right now. If you're heading uh, into the backcountry, particularly in, uh, in Banff National Park or other national parks, uh, this is a time when uh, bears are getting ready for denning season. Uh, they're really desperate for those food sources. They're trying to put on, on those pounds. So it's something to be aware of. But still, you know, the, the fact that we had this fatal grizzly attack uh, Friday near Banff or in Banff National Park, it does raise a lot of questions. You know, d- despite the concern right now with uh, denning season and how bears might be behaving, this is still unusual. Uh, so what we know is that there were two uh, hikers and their dog. This was uh, on the um, sort of the remote eastern part of Banff National Park. Uh, Banff authorities got uh, an alert from a GPS device. This was about 8 p.m. Friday. Uh, weather conditions prevented the use of a helicopter team. It wasn't until 1 a.m. Saturday morning uh, that crews uh, were able to reach the location. They found two people and their dog deceased. Once there, they encountered a grizzly bear exhibiting aggressive behavior and had to put it down. So still, these kinds of, of attacks are rare. Uh, but it does raise some questions, I guess. Is, is there anything uh, unusual here? What do people need to know? Because there is still some some decent weather uh, in the weeks ahead, and I know people are going to be getting out to the parks and even the backcountry. So joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, someone who's an expert uh, in this field, Kim Titchener joins us, president of Bear Safety and More. Uh, Kim, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, your initial reaction upon hearing this, given how rare these kinds of attacks are, I mean, how surprised were you, first of all? Oh, it's it's devastating to hear. It, it it is rare that we hear of a of a fatal attack. I mean, they do happen, uh, but you know, there's only like a few of them. Uh, you know, a year in all of North America. You think of the hundreds of millions of people that are out there, and, and the millions of visitors that we get yearly to places like Banff National Park. So. Um, rare, but uh, at the end of the day, to that family, it's an incredibly real and horrific thing that's happened. Yeah, no kidding. So we, there's, there's still much to, to, I guess, learn about what happened here. But one thing that should be noted, and I know you have some awareness of, of who they were, but these were apparently, as we understand, experienced hikers, correct? Yes, I, I got a call on uh, on Saturday that uh, the family had been notified, and, and a friend of mine, it was her, it was uh, her relatives, and uh, uh, yeah, absolutely devastating news uh, for them. But it, 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 it and a very unusual case for sure. So let's talk about what's what's happening at this time of year and how that might affect the behavior of of grizzly bears. Uh, well, you know, when we look at why bears attack, um, you know, specifically grizzly bears, the you know, majority of those attacks are usually uh, defensive attacks. There's, there's not, it's not a specific time period like fall is, 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 is not, just because the bears are going into bed doesn't soon, doesn't mean that, that, that they're going to be more likely to go after people. So I want people to feel reassured that the fall season is still a, a time you can get outdoors and have a great time. Um, if anything, the correlation with defensive attacks is more so related to the berry season. And, and it's actually during the, the, the summertime and, and a little bit later into the summer, um, there's just so much vegetation and so many berries down on the sides of the trails. That's when people tend to have a lot more collisions with bears and, 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 and close range encounters and, uh, and potential for attack. Um, but uh, yeah, bears are just uh, getting fat and eating tons 
tons of vegetation this time of year. Uh, the other type of attack we sometimes see, of course, is, is predatory attacks, but that's about 5% of attacks with grizzly bears. And so it's a, it's a small percentage, but one that certainly can happen. So we say predatory. Does that mean mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that bears are essentially then hunting in that sense, like they're attacking to, to consume? Or is, uh-huh. is this about they're defending something, they're defending maybe a, a food source? Uh, okay, so with defensive, it's when they have, when they already have a food source. Uh, whether it be garbage or a carcass, an animal that they're feeding on, right. or they have cubs with them, or you've just surprised them at very close right. range. So that's these are the major causes of grizzly bear attacks. Is, is they're a highly defensive species of their food, their young, and themselves. Um, so they can misinterpret you if you're not making a lot of noise. As if you suddenly come around the corner on your mountain bike at a high speed, they're going to think you're trying to attack them, and they're going to defend themselves. They'll huff their wolf. They'll, they'll make lots of stress noises to try to get you to leave. They may charge at you, uh, and then so that that represents the majority of of the types of encounters and the attacks that we see. And then there's that 5%, that predatory, um, which is, is, is where a bear has, is, is, is food seeking, as, as they may be seeking human food and misinterpret you as, as a place to get food because they've been hand fed or they've gotten to, let's say, food inside of someone's tent before and then they associate tents as a place to get food and then they end up attacking the people in a tent. Uh, they may be, sometimes the predatory attacks, it's because they're starving to death. They, you know, they didn't get enough food that summer or maybe they were injured. If they're elderly, they might be an older bear that's lost a lot of their teeth and they're, they're malnourished and they're just, they're just so weak and so tired and so, so hungry that they're willing to take the risk of going after people. Um, and they, you know, they see people as vulnerable. And this, this tends to be with people that are by themselves mm-hmm. or with one other person. And a lot of the times in, in more backcountry settings. And, you know, there are a lot of places across Canada and the U.S where, you know, bears may have little to no experience with humans at all and not really even know what we are. And they may misidentify and misinterpret us as, as, as prey species. So there's a whole range of, of, of potential answers there if it was a predatory attack as to why. Uh, and, of course, uh, a range of, 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 of reasons if it was, it was defensive. Uh, the issue now is that there's, there's no one to tell the tale. There's no one to say this is what happened. Uh, there's no survivors. And so it's left now for, you know, Parks Canada and, and specialists to, you know, do a necropsy on the bear, try to figure out, you know, the health of the animal, um, you know, look at uh, the actual forensics of the situation, what happened at, their, at, at where they were, uh, and to the victims to determine uh, what type of attack it, it was. Can we draw any conclusions about then, you know, the bear population itself? Do, mm-hmm. do these encounters suggest um, that maybe, I don't know, because I, I, I know this has come up, the idea maybe that if we reduce the population somewhat, if it's, if it's at a level where that needs to happen, maybe that would make an argument for opening up hunting in certain circumstances. But I don't know. Can we draw any conclusions along those lines? Uh, yeah, it's a great discussion question. And, and, you know, this topic comes up every time there is a bear attack. Uh, or a fatality, and, and a lot of uh, there's a lot of people in Alberta that say, "Well, like we need to get rid of the moratorium. We should be we should be hunting bears." Uh, we live in a province with less than a thousand grizzly bears. It's not like it's not like we have tens or twenty thousands. You know, we used to have those kinds of numbers, um, but that was you, you look back in that in that record of time when we had much larger populations of bears. We didn't have more bear attacks then. Uh, we have less bears now than we did before, and yet we have more bear attacks. What's going on? Uh, it's it's not. 
that the population is too large of, of bears. The problem is, is that there is too large of a population of humans going out into bear country, moving there, living there, recreating there with a lack of education and knowledge on how to behave. And uh, that is what we're seeing with large carnivore attacks across the United States and Canada is we're seeing more and more of them because the human population increases and we head outdoors. Uh, and, and about 50% of the time when these attacks occur, people are doing these risk-enhancing behaviors. They're walking dogs off leash. They're, they're, they're hiking uh, at dusk or dawn. They let their children walk ahead of them on the trail and they run into a cougar, uh, you know, approaching a female bear with cubs. So there's, there's a lot of things that we could be avoiding that would then reduce the number of attacks. And if we look at majority of these attacks, they're not related to there being hordes of bears everywhere. They're related right. to people's behavior or, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And I don't want to blame victims in this either, because there sometimes are absolute situations where, you know, you've been doing everything right. You've been you're going out in the backcountry for, for most of your life, which, you know, these people were and, and just wrong place, wrong time happened too. Yeah. This couple did have a dog with them. I mean, is mm-hmm. it possible that that was a factor? It is. Uh, it is certainly a, a possibility. Uh, you know, it, 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 if this thing had been happening, you know, maybe during the middle of the day, I'd, I'd be more so going, oh, maybe that was related. But yeah. uh, I know we're going to find out, I think, probably sometime at the point of, uh, today, I think there'll be more information released, um, you know, a bit more details on, on what they were doing at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't want to speculate because at the end of the day, I really just want I want the family to get like one story, one answer. This is what happened, so they can find some closure and some peace instead of speculation. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's extremely hard when you don't know why why this thing happened, why this happened to your family. Oh, no doubt, absolutely. I, I mean, just you know, the, the broader point about backcountry safety and bear awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like this weekend, the forecast looking really nice, and maybe we've mm-hmm. still got a, a bit of nice fall weather. People are going to be venturing uh, to the national parks and in the backcountry. What do people need to be aware of? Well, I would recommend you take a bear safety class before you go. Uh, you, there are credible locations to get information. Uh, Parks Canada's website is fantastic, Alberta Parks. Uh, you can go and check our, our websites out. We have bearsafety.com and recsafewithwildlife.com. We have online courses there, and we also try to offer a few free classes throughout the, throughout the, throughout the year uh, on Zoom. Um, I would go with your friends, go in a group. You know, we generally don't see attacks in groups of four or more. Make a ton of noise every couple of minutes as you're moving through the bush, letting out a hoop and a holler. If you're going to go on your bike, you're going to have to make noise even more often because you're moving at a high speed. Keep the group together. Carry bear spray. And when I say carry, I mean physically put it on a holster on your physical body. And every single adult in your group has to have their own can. Everyone needs to be responsible for themselves because they might have to be saving the life of another person. And if you're the one getting attacked by the bear and you're the one who carried the bear spray and everyone's saying, going around, well, he had the bear spray, right. it's not going to help you very much. Uh, you know, watch for signs of bear activity. Or, you know, you might see some bear scat on the ground. You might see paw prints or scratches or roots all dug up, um, rocks turned over, or even come across something like a carcass or smell a dead animal, birds of prey flying above. All of these things um, are really important to be aware of. Um, and, and again, making tons and tons of noise so that you can let these bears know you're, you're moving in their direction so they can get out of your way. And I can tell you that most bears want nothing to do with us. Uh, and that is why these cases are so rare, because bears are not walking around every day in the bush going, I want to hurt people. They're just walking around going, I just want to survive um, in the last bits of landscape that they have, such as Banff National Park. Much more as mentioned, bearsafety.com. Kim, really appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. 
You're so welcome. Take All care. All the best. You too. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Kim Titchener, uh, president of Bear Safety and more. Uh, so bearsafety.com, you can read more there. So some thoughts on what we know about this situation. And, and there is much we still don't know. And hopefully we can get some some clear answers about what may have happened here. And, yeah, I think she's right. I mean, you know, for the family uh, of uh, families of those killed, you know, that, that they want not speculation. They want some facts. They want to know what happened here. But I think it's important that we all kind of learn from this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.